0: The first reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 to 27. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken did not the messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory and beginning with moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself now the second reading is from paul's first letter to the corinthians chapter 15 verses 12 to 34. But if it is preached that Christ has risen from the dead, how can you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised then Christ has not been raised either and if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile you are still in your sins Then those who have also fallen asleep are, cr- are lost sorry then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ are lost if only for this life we have hope in Christ we of all people are most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who puts everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Let me pray. Father, open the eyes of our
1: heart as we tend to your word now, the power of your spirit. May we deeply know the hope to which we've been called. May the power that raised Christ from the dead be at work in us now. Amen. The Washington Post ran an experiment a number of years back they asked a young, young busker to stand at a DC metro station playing a violin by a rubbish bin at morning peak hour. He played for 43 minutes, performed six classical pieces, uh, and 1,097 people walked past. And each of them, 1,097, each of them, had a quick choice to make, namely, do I stop and listen. No one knew it, said the article, but the fiddler standing there was one of the finest classical musicians in the world, playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made. The violinist was Joshua Bell, and the violin was a Stradivarius worth $3.5 million. Take a look. remarkable? Joshua Bell in the subway stop, Joshua Bell in concert. Seven people stopped to listen, 27 threw in change for a total of $32. $32. The article was named Pearls Before Breakfast, and they asked the question in a banal moment, in an ordinary, setting would beauty transcend. We humans find it hard to pick it, to notice it with all the noise and the overinformation and the anxieties and worries of life. We could walk past ultimate beauty and miss it. This year we have a theme, the theme of transforming hope. And some of us could simply walk past and miss it the staff here have a pastoral prayer for 2023 that our church hill community would press into this hope not via sermons but you as a disciple of jesus christ that each of us would press into this capital h hope that we have in jesus and his resurrection and to do so in a way that lifts our spirits gives us great endurance awakens our faith makes us bold even in evangelism, causes us to serve others, embeds us in community and sees our lives transformed. Wouldn't that be great? Amen? Wouldn't that not be great? Last week, Rob gave us a definition of hope, namely that it is an expectation which is not unreasonable of something that is desirable. He pointed out that there are little hopes, you might call them, or he called them, common garden variety hopes, and they're there in the Bible and you know them in life. But there is also a grander, all encompassing hope. And this ultimate hope is what the New Testament proclaims. But will we stop and listen? Our service started thus In God's great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Hear that? An inheritance that can never be taken from you. Who doesn't want that? According to the writer of Hebrews in chapter six, verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, hear that? An anchor. This is the hope that you don't want to be busily walking past. A new thing perhaps for this morning, hope is expressed in the present. You currently, presently hope for something in the future. And so we yearn for it now with this ultimate hope. We haven't got it all yet and life is hard But if we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the spirit as a down payment, as Rob said last week, Rob surveyed the New Testament last week, you can download that sermon. Rob also set that hope against a materialist worldview. That is a worldview where there is no God and therefore no ultimate meaning, no ultimate purpose behind it all, just the ones that we cobbled together. We have a shadowy past and a bleak future. Remember this last week? Bertrand Russell wrote honestly in 1927, he wrote a piece called Why I'm Not a Christian, and he said this, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave that all the labor of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy rejects them, can hope, to stand. I will outline in two weeks time why people don't want to believe in the Christian hope because they don't believe it. But this week I want to outline why people do believe in this Christian or ultimate hope because we do. Lots of us do. Millions of us. Billions. I believe the Christian hope with all my heart. And one of the reasons is that it aligns with the human heart, all human hearts to some degree, but not completely. This is, this week is a two part sermon. The second part is the week after Rivendell. This week, how it aligns with the human heart and in two weeks time, how it doesn't or why people don't want what is being offered in the Christian message. So three points. This is all in your outline in the service sheet, human yearnings, kingdom leanings, and why the gospel is good news and challenging too. Human yearnings and then kingdom leanings. I want to talk first about human yearnings, what we want, what humans seem to want. Jesus outlined the coming hope that was from God. Very simply, he began his ministry saying, thus, the kingdom of God is at hand. And everyone then knew what that meant. Elsewhere, he called it the renewal of all things. He said, at the renewal of all things, a moment in the future. Indeed, the Lord's prayer is basically a prayer saying to God, bring it on. May your will be done on earth as it currently is in heaven. Now, all of this accords with Jewish hopes articulated in Jewish prophecies embedded in the Jewish story, which has its origin in creation. Adoniram Judson said, "'The future is as bright as the promises of God.'" In that first reading you read, the disciples were upset that Jesus died because they said we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, but with his death came the death of those hopes. And yet with this knowledge of his resurrection, Jesus explaining how the Old Testament pointed to his death, indeed his resurrection, comes then a movement that has swept the world. The future is as bright as the promises of God. But at its heart, this hope contains things I believe that most humans want. Sometime in the future, leaning towards it, hoping for it. Maybe there'll be a restoration of human dignity and accounting for all the evil in the world. And people reach for it by squinting and calling it karma without knowing what karma is. But a moment in the future where there'll be ultimate justice and a victory over sickness, please, and disease, and indeed death itself, a place where peace will reign on earth where nations no longer go to war, where the vulnerable are no longer abused and the environment is no longer destroyed and everything good in the world is established and indeed forever. John Dixon once said, if anyone has ever wished for a better world, they have in some sense wished for the kingdom of God. People, ironically, including atheists, love to quote Martin Luther King Jr. when he said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But this can only be true. This can only be true if there's a God above it all. For everyone else, it is at best wishful thinking, at worst a rhetorical tool to get the justice or worse the utopia that you desire but human beings want a better world. C.S. Lewis makes a famous and a very interesting point when he proposes that our strong longings for a better world suggest that a world exists in the same way that hunger suggests that food exists. Listen to this. A man's physical hunger does not prove that a man will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic, but surely a person's hunger does prove that she or he comes from a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where edible substances exist. In other words, if this is hungry, and it is a little bit right now, if this is hungry, it suggests that there's something out there to fill it, and I'd go looking for it. He says, in the same way, Though I do not believe, I wish I did, that my desire for paradise proves that I shall enjoy it, some people in this room will not enjoy the future God has prepared. They've not received it. In the same way, though I do not believe, I wish I did, that my desire for paradise proves that I shall enjoy it, I think it's a pretty good indication that such a thing exists, a future better world, a paradise, and that some men will enjoy it. A man may love a woman and not win her, but it will be a very odd phenomena, phenomenon called falling in love if falling in love occurred in a sexless world. In other words, our longing for a better world suggests that a better world exists. It's so universal. It would be the only genuine hunger we have that has no thing to resolve it. I want to argue that what is common to man is met in the Christian gospel, at least partly. Secondly then, kingdom leanings, what God has promised. A guy came to me in my first year here at Churchill, and he wasn't a Christian, didn't go to church, and he said to me, I don't get it. I've listened to what you're saying, I don't get it. You seem to have what everyone wants. Hope, you seem to have what drives everyone. He said, I simply don't get why people don't flock to church. Now, I could think of a few reasons. (laughs) Past hurts. They don't believe it. Requires a commitment. Jesus says, if you want life, you must carry a cross. Peer pressure, what my family say, if I yield. Media coverage, aren't we the bad guys? Come on, Rivendell. I tried it before, didn't seem to work. Boredom, maybe that's you right now. My apologies. This hope takes too long, and it has suffering embedded into it. Johnny Cash, they say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. But this is all there in the pages of the New Testament for those willing to stop and listen. It's on every page of the Old and New Testament for those who want God. And it's behind the ministry of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And it is proclaimed in all the world for those willing to stop in the business and listen. Let me open up briefly 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 34, as an example. And again, you can open up your Bibles to the place you are at before. Paul is open that if the Christian gospel is false, we get nothing. If you're following the outline, what happens if Christ has not been raised, verses 12 to 19? In verses 12 to 19, Paul opens with a warning. He says, some of you in the church in Corinth believe that there is no future involving a resurrection. There's no moment in the future where God raises the dead into a new heavens and a new earth. This is all there is. Those people in the church in Corinth are not like Martha at the tomb of her brother Lazarus. She says, I believe that he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. They're more in line with the Sadducees of Jesus' day. So some are saying there's no moment when God raises the dead, although they're happy to say that Jesus did, but no one else will. And so Paul argues logically in verse 3, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, if that thing doesn't exist, then surely Christ has not been raised from the dead, verse 3. And if that's the case, if Christ has not been raised, then we lose everything. If Jesus didn't walk out of that tomb alive, the bottom falls out, the whole Christian project. First, he says in verse 14, our preaching is useless. All of this is mere hot air. Further, verse 15, we then, Paul speaks for those who speak about this Christian hope, are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that that he raised Christ from the dead. We end up liars, he says, peddlers of a falsehood, snake oil salesmen. And Paul says, that's true about us, but what about you? He says, you, the bottom falls out of forgiveness for sins, so you can have no confidence in front of a holy God. Bottom falls out, he says, because Christ died and Christ rose again as justification for your sins. Verse 17 And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins because the thing that was supposed to take it away never took it away. And more, you lose your confidence in the face of death because some have fallen asleep, some have already died. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost already. We lose everything good if this message is a hoax. Verse 19, if only for this life we have our hope in Christ. We are, of all people, most to be pitied. We may as well go and scramble, like most people do, to order their lives as happily as they can. A, what happens if Christ has not been raised? What happens if it's true that Christ has been raised from the dead, verses 20 to 28? Verses 20 to 28 need your own meditation. Fill your belly up with lunch and spend half an hour in these nine verses. In it, Paul outlines why Christ's resurrection is hope for now and for beyond death and for the planet. You get this whole world and the one to come. For Christ will be king over all of it, as we sang in our second song a few moments ago. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of many. First fruits of all those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. As in Adam, all die. So in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus is the solution to the human problem. But he says there's an order, verse 23. First, Christ has been raised. He walked out of that tomb alive. But then verse 24, those who belong to him at a later time, at a decisive moment in the future, may your kingdom come. And then verse 24, the end will come. Bertrand Russell was wrong, not with the end of the death of the solar system or the sun, But when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Now, the contention of the New Testament, this is the good king. Washes feet, would prefer to die for you than kill you or hurt you. And so all the muck gets dealt with. All the abuse, all the bullying, all the misuse of power, all the destruction... All the sin, the ugly sin, all the war and conflict, Jesus will stamp it all out as victor, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the best news of all, death itself gets defeated. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is not the government or my boss or my neighbor who bugs me, the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself for, quote, the Psalms, he has put everything under his feet. Death itself is defeated. And by the way, everything means everything except God the Father, because this future world is described as God all and in all. Right? In other words, everything aligned with the will of the creator, but the last enemy that is destroyed at the feet of Jesus Christ, is death itself. Hallelujah. J.K. Rawling. in the news a lot lately, bless her, she wrote in The Deathly Hallows, something I think remarkable, and perhaps suggesting deeply that Rawling herself knew that this hope was universal. She scribed on Lily and James's Potter's Tombstone, a quote from this text, from 1 Corinthians 15. I quote from the book. This is, uh, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Harry read the word slowly. Unlike our friends in the Washington, D.C. metro station. Harry read the word slowly, as though he would have only one chance of taking their meaning. And maybe today is that chance for you. Harry read the words slowly as though he would have only one chance to take in their meaning, and he read the last of them aloud. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. He stopped in the subway. He had a reason to listen. All of this hope comes because Christ has been raised from the dead. Tim Keller in New York City says this, the resurrection was indeed a miraculous display of God's power, but we should not see it as a suspension of the natural order of the world, as if the world goes on, and Jesus, bing, he pops out of a tomb. We go, I like that. That's not what's going on. No, rather, Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of the restoration of the natural order of the world, the world as God intended it to be, the renewal of all things. The resurrection means not merely that Christians have a hope for the future, but that they have a hope that comes from the future. The Bible's startling message is that when Jesus rose, he brought the future kingdom of God into the present, which is why the resurrection of Jesus changes things now. Point C on your outline. In verses 29 to 34, Paul discusses some very practical reasons why things change. He says, firstly, he can endanger himself all day long, he can choose the hard path. Verse 30, he doesn't have to protect this life as if there were only human hopes to live. He doesn't live for this life only. In verse 34, referring to some dangerous event, he says, if I fought wild beasts at Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? You know, I worked hard, I put my body in danger, but you know, I'm just a peddler of lies, if this is true. No, he says, if the dead are not raised, and he believes the dead are, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's live for this moment. The one right in front of you, work, sex, alcohol, my feelings and desires. A belief in the resurrection gets you above these things. And as we'll see in 2023, it has moral implications. Verse 33, do not be misled bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses, says Paul, if Christ is raised from the dead, as you ought, and stop sinning. For there is some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. Here's the truth, we live leaning forward, bent on arriving at the place we long for. This future hope changes life now. So why then is the gospel good news and and challenging too? I believe this hope is what you want, I really do believe that. If you'll stop and listen, and dig a little bit. In the story Jesus told, a man finds a treasure hidden in a field. When he finds the treasure, he goes and sells everything he has to buy the field, because he wants the treasure. It costs him, dig for it, listen. Swing back and check it out, $32. This hope in the Christian message is ultimate, not just my personal hope. And yet the hope is also personal. It transforms my life. This hope is comprehensive. It encompasses not just the world, but the universe. And yet this hope is grounded in reality, in in history, in In this world, in the here and now, this is a hope that can handle suffering, give you the resources you didn't think you had. It indeed has heroes to look up to, and perhaps the best news of all, this hope is achieved not by government or political agitation, as important as those things can be from time to time, but this ultimate hope is not coming through some utopian dream, think how many dead bodies are left in the wake of someone who believes that the ultimate hope comes through political action now. No, this hope comes in a moment in the future that God decides and God brings, which means you wait, put down your sword, and you hope, and you pray, and you love. And so this is a challenging hope. You get God. You get God. But with God, you get his path, his way, his truth. Not your own path. Not your own way. Not your own truth. Can I just say right now, if you are hoping at your funeral to have Frank Sinatra played, he did it, I did it my way, then it means you don't, you don't know God. It cannot mean you know God. Is that true? Press into it. Tell me later I'm wrong. Tell me later I'm wrong. I wanna be wrong. No, I don't. Remember Johnny Cash? They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. (laughs) This is for two weeks time, why people don't want this hope. But in the meantime, reach out. Take it. Don't walk past. Don't bin it. Don't doubt it. It'll be too easy to miss it. Sit up and listen, and let it transform. Let's pray. I'm going to pray the prayer of the Apostle Paul over your life, over your heart, indeed, over the eyes of your heart. Who knew the heart has eyes? I pray in this moment that the eyes of each heart in this room may be opened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in his holy people, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. May the power that raised Christ from the dead be at work in us and grant us this transforming hope. Amen.